How do lost textile histories from marginalized communities impact and limit our understanding of fashion history and fashion as a whole? How does uncovering and understanding these histories help us better envision the potential future for fashion? Well, let's explore. Part of making our loved clothes last is mindful clothing care. And our partner, Green Eco Dream, is the ultimate destination for all things low-impact and low-waste laundry. From plastic-free biodegradable laundry detergent and natural stain remover sticks to a microfiber catching ball and organic cotton laundry bag, and everything in between. Green Eco Dream is an eco-conscious marketplace that thoroughly vets brands for sustainability, social responsibility, and transparency to make finding eco-friendly alternatives for your home, health, beauty, and on-the-go needs so much simpler. Green Eco Dream is a Green America certified business and 1% for the planet member as well. You can visit ConsciousLifeInStyle.com forward slash dream or check out the link in the episode description to browse their collections, including their Eco Laundry Essentials. Again, that link is ConsciousLifeInStyle.com forward slash dream. You're listening to the Conscious Style Podcast, where each Tuesday we explore what it will take to create a better, more sustainable, and equitable future for fashion. I'm your host, Elizabeth Joy. Hey there, and welcome or welcome back to the show. As you may know, this season of the podcast is all about slow fashion and envisioning the possibilities of a post-growth future. Today, we're slowing down to talk textile history, weaving, and the role of technology in fashion. Today's guest is Karen Baker, who is the founder of Fiber with a Cause and who is an ethnographic fiber artist. Karen has been weaving and knitting for eight years and focuses on using natural and organic fibers and materials to design ethnically handcrafted textiles, accessories, and rugs. Karen is currently researching the patterns, dyeing, and weaving techniques and processes of enslaved African-American weavers before the Great Migration and their contributions to fiber and textile design. And from this research, Karen then integrates their techniques into her own artwork. So in this episode, we will be talking about Karen's work, both her research and her projects with Fiber with a Cause. And we also talk about the layered reality of technology and fashion that makes production more convenient, but also faster and easier to overproduce. We also get into the complexities of the role of technology in our own lives, too. As always, the transcript for this episode and all the relevant links will be in the show notes at ConsciousLifeAndStyle.com. All right, now let's dive in. Karen is starting us off here with what inspired her journey into weaving and her current research work. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was really trying to find or kind of rediscover my creativity when I was in graduate school at Savannah College of Art and Design and had crocheted as uh, 11 or 12 years old. And when I was, you know, at Savannah, I was trying to figure out, okay, what do I want to do? I have painted, you know, I kind of had my hands in making for a while, but I had a creativity coach when I was at Savannah College of Art and Design. And Somehow we got to crochet and the fact of me doing this young and how I enjoyed it. And she, you know, suggested that I pick it back up again. So I did. And in doing that, it was like, I don't even remember that I remembered how much I enjoyed, you know, fiber and and the, the process of fiber and using it. And it just, I think it just reinvigorated something in me that had been lost. And I moved to knitting from there and learned to knit because I had always 
wanted to learn to knit because I just like the way the patterns and the flexibility. It seemed like you just had a lot more to offer. And those who crochet is going to probably be like, no way, no way. But it, it just <laughs> <laughs> it just appealed to me in that way. The tightness of the knit, the ability to use this variety of needles. And so I went to knitting and then I met a pers- a master weaver from Ghana. And he was showing me these, oh my God, just these amazing works that he had done for the Smithsonian and using just fine pieces of silk and the patterns and how the patterns were resembling of different times in history and what they meant. And I was like, this is something I'm really drawn to is weaving, you know? And so I found a place to weave and started weaving. And it's now been eight years of me actually weaving. And it has always been a space of Weaving had a, has a lot of history, what I didn't know. He introduced me a little bit, but really started to find out the amount of cultures that have their own, not only techniques, but the way that the history is so ingrained in the culture and how it has historically been part from a labor standpoint or really economics and then culturally how it's been a part of it. And so, again, I was very drawn to it and I started to use it as a means of research when I decided to go back and get an MFA. Yeah, there's so much cultural context and history with fibers and weaving. And as an ethnographic fiber artist, you are literally weaving in history and culture into your work. And Mm -hmm. you're currently researching the techniques and fibers used by African-Americans before the Great Migration. So could you speak to that research and how that has informed your current crafting practice today? Yeah, it it really has, I would say, probably two years in now, it has formed the work. I started researching it right before I went to get the MFA and, of course, started to fine tune it, uh, the research and how and where I saw African-Americans have a place in weaving. Because as I was studying more textile, weaving was becoming, it was such a big part of textile, which again, not knowing if you're on the end user part of textile, you just see the beautiful cloth. You see it, you see it dyed, you see it made, but so much of weaving plays a part in textile. So when I was taking this textile design and history course, we were studying these geographical cultures that had contributed so much to textile and all of them had weaved. Every last culture had weaved. And I was like, okay, so where is African-American culture in the weaving process? And I started to look and, you know, try to find where African-Americans, those of African descent who've come over to America, been brought to America, enslaved in America, how were they part of this history? It was extremely difficult to find in the very beginning and still is not the easiest of the research but it's starting to unfold. But unlike other histories where you just kind of can just look and it'll be right there, it's not that way. So it really was the initial start of really just trying to find that we had a place in weaving before the Great Migration. And when I was able to finally find it, it's because someone had begun to research it before me and found the information through historical data that was wrapped in slave narratives. It wasn't even the main highlight of the slave narratives. It was just dug, pushed within pieces where those who were enslaved were just talking about their days on a plantation. And they are just reminiscing and weaving and knitting and dying came into these narratives. Though the Federal Writers Project who did the narratives didn't even pull them out. They didn't spend time pulling them out. This Mm -hmm. researcher did. Her name is Mary Madison. And so when I started to look at it, I was like, okay, so how is my work shaped by this? How can I shape my work by this? Maybe this is why I'm so drawn, have been so drawn to weaving in this way, because there was an historical aspect that connected me, you know, from my cultural background, being an African-American woman that I didn't even know you know, was actually Mm -hmm. there. And so as I started to really look at the techniques and even the artifacts, even talking to Mary, she said that is where she struggled the hardest too. Could not find any artifacts, had a hard time really finding techniques. 
And I'm still on that journey and we'll be on that journey. You're right. It's ongoing. It's going to be a while because during those time periods, we were not allowed to read and write. So, of course, we weren't documenting patterns and processes that we were actually going through. We were just doing the work. Mm -hmm. Right. So you are up against a lot of challenges to say the least, when it comes to finding these artifacts and documentation of African-American contributions to textiles, how do you think that this lost history influences or inhibits our broader understanding of textiles and weaving? That's a great question. Even an organization I sit on the board of, one of the other person who sits on the DEI committee with me. She's a weaver. And she was saying, you know, to the rest of the group, you know, she's, I don't know many weavers. She says, Karen's one of few. Now we have an age gap between us. And she was like, it would be great to bring community together. So I have found some people who weave like through social media, Instagram, they are very few. And I'm talking about Mm African-American women who weave. So the impact is the technique not being passed down to African-American women. Quilting has, and that went through his own process of discovery and kind of this reawakening. But weaving has not been passed on to African-American women to say, let me teach you, let me show you that this was part of our history. And even those that I have informed to literally in their 70s that I have found this level of research have been very emotional. Because they were like, it made them know why they were drawn to it, but they never knew why. Because even in weaving for 20, 25 years, these people have been weaving that long, teaching other people to weave. They have been showing them other techniques, techniques like Navajo. They have not been able to show them, oh, an African-American weaver. This is an African-American tradition that we weave this way. This pattern was created in this way. And so that is the impact. This is the history. Mm-hmm. The history has been lost. I think it's the Smithsonian who has something now called, they started, this is very new. I think it's called reformative or restorative history. It's a whole program that is designated to trying to restore history that has been lost within a culture. And so that's the impact is that there are very so very few African-American women, if they're weaving, they don't know the level of contribution that was made before they picked up the craft, whichever way they picked up the craft in that way. So the textile industry acknowledging it, I haven't seen it. Because again, I really have talked to people who've been in, in weaving, even weaving for a living, who are just blown away by the fact that this is a historical contribution that they knew nothing about. Right. And that is a very real impact. And of course, weaving and textiles is just one example of how history has failed to acknowledge and appropriately credit the contributions of Black, Indigenous, and people of color or the global majority Yeah. Speaking from the lens of fashion, though, what is the impact of this missing textile history in how we view what the fashion industry even is and what it can be? Yeah, that's just another good question, though, because I think there's a term that if you don't know where you come from, you don't know kind of where you're going. You know, Mm. it's St. Kofa. It's looking back in the past in order to figure out where you're going in the future. So the opportunity to know your history to me is an opportunity. It is an opportunity to be able to make impact, particularly in an industry in which you're choosing as a career. So in us talking about textile and fashion, it's like anything, when you're able to see yourself represented, see your history represented in a place in which you're passionately, particularly makers and creatives and artists, I think that there is going to be a level of gratitude, acceptance, celebration, rather than this pushing up against what we would say the system Mm -hmm. to accept you into the system. Mm -hmm. Because the system is seeing you. It's not unusual. It's not against the norm. It is the norm for them to actually see an African-American weaver 
the African-American textile designer frequently. They're not surprised by it or that only, you know, you like the only in your space, you know, in that particular way. So the impact by seeing yourself more frequently is going to grow an industry. It's going to create more diversity in an industry. We talk about the word innovation. It creates more innovation in an industry when you have all these different viewpoints being able to come into an industry. A culture impacts innovation quite a bit. So that's the impact that it can make to textile and the impact that it can in turn make to fashion because textile is a place, such an important part mm-hmm. in the fashion industry. Sometimes you just don't hear that said that, you know, the type of fabric that you see worn, who made it? Mm-hmm. What type of product and fabric and time was actually put into what type of threads and fiber were actually put into that in that particular way? And we talk about conscious you talk about a level of sustainability, then that conversation plays in too. You know, what type of cotton was used for this? Where did it come from? What is the history of that particular cotton? You know, even silk, you know, linen, all of that plays into it. Mm, Right. Yeah. I mean, we are largely speaking, very disconnected from how our clothes are made, who makes our clothes, let alone who and where the fibers for our clothes are being produced or harvested. And I think that we are also so very disconnected from the history of clothing and fiber cultivation. Yeah. I mean, the more I learn, the more I see how many of the issues that we are seeing today in the industry are actually Mm -hmm. rooted in a long, dark history of colonialism and slavery. And we have to look to that history to get a deeper understanding of issues like cultural appropriation or exploited labor everywhere from the cotton fields to the cut and sew facilities. Absolutely. Totally agree. And the history is so important because as you were saying, how do we know where we're going if if we don't know where we came from? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but you know, it, it is. And the more that people, I just use the simple word of care, you know, the more that people care that they do know, the more that people care that they actually spend the time looking beyond what is put in front of them in any interested part of it. And you t- a great point is the cultural appropriation. Some people do it consciously and some people do it unconsciously, but where people fault those who do it unconsciously is that you still have a responsibility to look. You know, you have the responsibility to see if this came from somewhere before mm-hmm. you. And if it did not, then there you are, you're innovating. You know what I'm saying? You're creating something that has never been done, but we all know that's not easy <laughs> <laughs> to do. So you must look first. Yeah, absolutely. That is a very good point. And When it comes to looking for these lost, overlooked, or perhaps intentionally marginalized histories, you know, where can we, I guess, start to look for those contributions by artisans or makers or cultures of the global majority? Like, how can we search for that and make sure that we do have that full understanding and proper attribution and all those things? I think one of the things is leaving space for the industry to grow when you talk about the people who are underrepresented. So when you look around and you look in a room and you see that everybody looks like you, then you have to ask yourself, why aren't there? And you could fill in the blank, you know, Because until the door is open, I'm like wide, then you're going to make it so that people have to keep trying to kick it in, you know, the door or making it so that the door shuts so tightly people feel they can't get in. So -hmm. you really have to start leaving the room for people to be invited into an industry where they have to either stay small and I mean, not be as big and noted as others you know, and the climb is harder, you know, and you also have to, again, I think it still goes back to this this restorative history, spending some time being able to understand that there was a culture, is a culture, 
that is still taking part in something that you're passionate about, that you love, you know, and that they are contributing and have contributed and then how you economically contribute to that. You know what I'm saying? So even if you're not in textile or not in fashion, but you absolutely consume it. So how do you make sure that you consume and reach out beyond what you know in that particular way? So you should be practicing that. It's a practice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Or even the funding you talk about, you know, in an investment standpoint, even the money to invest in the communities that you know are not represented in textile and and fashion Mm -hmm. industry. When they want to start a collection or create a line or sell their wares, start a brand, it takes money. Mm -hmm. And so where in there are you going to afford them that opportunity too? You know, provide them with the capital necessary to be able to deliver something to the consumer in a way Mm -hmm. that will allow them, again, what I said, to have the notoriety to push forward their goal in the way that anyone else would. You talk about equity, it has to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Investments, funding, and making sure people who have been marginalized are not only at the table, but centered at the decision-making tables. Yes. yes. So given the challenges of doing this research, including the difficulties with finding tangible artifacts, how have you been able to integrate African-American weaving techniques and fibers in your work thus far? Yeah, so I think indigo is probably the early beginnings of it, understanding the history of indigo and those who came over from, were brought here from Africa in order to help harvest indigo here in the United States, particularly in the South Carolina area. And we're given no credit for the scientific knowledge that it needed in order to bring indigo into a place that it could be sold. I mean, indigo was extremely profitable. And a lot of people were brought over to be enslaved in order to harvest it, to be able to bring it to market because of their slave owners not being able to do so. It's not an easy bush (laughs) to grow. So indigo is one in the practice of it. So I grow indigo. This is my second year growing indigo. And I actually grow it with a a Black farmer as well. It was her first time growing indigo as well. So she was really excited to be able to do that (laughs) as well. And now we're growing cotton. So when I had knowledge of brown and green cotton being more organic and more sustainable, then I wanted to try that as well, too. You know, and how could I grow the fibers in order to allow other fiber artists and textile artists to use it in their work? It's not just for me Mm -hmm. because I'm big on community and neither is the indigo. It's for them to be able to use it in their work and have access to the the dye and have access to the fibers. And right now we're growing brown and green cotton as well. And it is growing, it's growing very well. So it's the beautiful thing of getting with a farmer who does know what they're doing. Cause I'm not a grower, you know, <laughs> but um, she is, and she is very excited. So that is one. And then the other was looking at the, some of the time period in slavery in South Carolina and looking at the clothing that was being worn and the materials that were being worn in slavery in South Carolina. So they were doing blends during that time. So like putting linen and cotton together and sometimes wool in it as well too. So can you imagine like a hundred and some degrees outside being in linen and cotton? I'm like, really linen, not linen that you wear your nice little outfit. This is Linen is a, a rough material. Mm. And so I took those and used them to mm. create rugs that were basically my contribution to my ancestors. So I used those, I created patterns with those and to show that this is a time period. If you feel it, if you touch it, can you imagine wearing this on your skin? Can you imagine wearing this on your back and then trying to pick cotton at that same time and not being allowed to wear anything else in notes in that law that they are to be uncomfortable. Mm. And so the clothing is to be 
clothing and which makes them uncomfortable, but they cannot change their clothing. So it's things like that that I have done to make sure that I'm embedding the technique slowly as I learn. Wow. So they were forced to wear uncomfortable clothing by law. Yeah, it was by law. Mm-hmm, it was by law. Mm. Just speaking of history and the, and the importance of history, I, you know, I wasn't even aware of that. Yeah, for me either, too. I mean, when I read that law initially, I'm like, this is something. I said, this is really something that it states <laughs> they are to be uncomfortable. So mm. the hottest thing that you could wear put you in the hottest thing that you could wear in extreme temperatures and create, put you in a place of labor, which is enslaved. And then this is where you are, you know? So, I mean, it's a lot, you know, it really is a lot. And so I was like, you know, really trying to understand and pay my homage in that way by showing people, you know, and the rug that I made out of linen and linen and wool. I mean, you're talking about heavy. It's heavy. And I was like, can you imagine putting this on, you know, as a piece of clothing? Because I try to get linen and cotton and hemp in its natural form. Because you talk about the 1700s, it was coming that way. You didn't have the ability to commercialize and industrialize it. It was coming in a more of a natural form. So, yeah, it's been very interesting. Yeah. But a lot of the politics and law and policies at that time way back to the textile industry. One person said to me, textile is political and it is absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Fashion is deeply political. Textiles are political and it's also deeply entwined, intertwined with human rights, social justice, of course, the climate crisis. But To shift gears a little bit, I wanted to make sure that in this conversation, we talk about Fiber with a Cause, your nonprofit organization that you founded. So could you tell us a bit about why you founded Fiber with a Cause and, you know, what the mission of the organization is and and what you're working on? Yeah, so Fiber with a Cause is something I created in 2016 and then formalized it just last year. And it really was formalized out of the work I was doing with my MFA and the work that I'm now doing with my doctorate as well too. You know, I wanted to form a sense of community around the fiber arts industry. And for those who feel that they've been left again out of the historical context of what the fiber arts has brought to really billions of dollars in this industry, and be able to offer them not only a a platform to be seen and heard, but we also want to offer programming classes that will allow them to increase their craft, also e-commerce in order to allow them to bring their crafts to market as well too. And then the growing is underneath fiber with the cause indigo, the brown cotton, the green cotton that we're growing and some other plants that we're actually going marigold, things that are all dyeable, we want to continue to offer those to fiber artists for nothing. Like a, eventually we'll do probably like a CSA program, but it'll be, again, CSA programs, if you know, are low in cost. They do not burden the person receiving them. So we even talked about that with the farmer that we're growing with. And like, how would you weigh it by pound and how people would pick up what is available and harvested through the farm in that particular way. So that is definitely the vision as well too. The long-term vision, but we hope it's short-term, is mm-hmm. to own a mill. I really would like to wow. own a mill yeah. because even in looking at my research, I keep saying, okay, does a Black woman own a fiber mill? I haven't seen one. I haven't heard one. I've seen two families, African-American families, own cotton farms and they actually produce cotton One just did a a farm, their farm just produced cotton for Target for the Black History Month t-shirt that Target did. And the other one does their cotton and they do wreaths and things like that. You buy bales of cotton from them as well. But I was like, okay, what about a mill? I'm very interested to find if someone owns a mill and I have not yet to unveil a Black woman who owns a mill. So that is the goal to own a mill. The last mill that I could find was owned by a Black man, and it was in 1856. So I was like, 
And it took me a while to find him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I discovered him through some photographs from the Paris exhibition in the 1800s. W.E.D. Du Bois wrote about him and photographed him and his board. And he it popped up in my research and that he was there. And he kept saying the Coleman Mill. And I was like, OK, so what type of mill? And he said manufacturing. So it didn't say fiber in it. But when I looked, he did fiber. He did cotton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be really cool if you founded your own mill. I'm mm-hmm. excited to watch your progress with that. And hopefully, yeah, the next time we talk, we, you know, hopefully some years ago back, because I'm not ready to own a mill right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we will have a conversation about me opening a mill, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, that would be really fascinating. We have not heard from a mill owner or anything about milling. I think on this show, we haven't really talked about that stage of production in the fashion supply chain. So mm-hmm. something to look forward to. Yeah. So what has your process been like so far working with the Indigo Garden and the brown and green cotton at Fiber with a Cause? I'm sure that is super interesting. Yeah, it is. Is it because when I set out to harvest indigo, like I said, the two of the farmers that were part of it, you know, they were very excited to do indigo. They had never had done indigo before because they were just growing fruits and vegetables. And so we pulled the information, studied the information. They used the process that George Washington Carver would use for, because he was a a dyer. He dyed, he weaved, and he, so he was a big textile artist. So they using his farming techniques and they're growing already. So they moved those over to how they grew the indigo. The interesting thing about indigo is people think that it must be like this plant, but it is a bush. It is a green bush. But when you look, the leaves are just as blue. There's hints of blue all through the leaves. And it is it is really it's fascinating because at eye, you know, level, you search, look at it, you just see green. All you have to do is lean it a little bit and you see blue all in the leaves of the plant. So when you take it and you dry it out and then you kind of crush it down and then you could grind it and get yourself a blue dye is what you can do with it. So I still have the leaves just crushed up. Some of them I have not transferred them into a liquid form of the dye, but it definitely is a process that indigo takes time, not just in Mm -hmm. harvest, I mean, to create the dye. It is a true process of it. The process of delivering a blue piece of fabric is a process as well. It's labor intensive is what I'll say. But when you pull those colors out, it's just an amazing feeling. It really is to, because yeah. it's oxidation that creates the blue. So when you pull it up and the air hits it, then you'll see the blue. You don't see it initially. And then you put it back in, you pull it back out, you get more blue. So the air is a big part of how you actually get indigo. Wow. I can imagine that is just so cool to see. And yeah, that's the beauty of slow fashion. And something I've been thinking about a lot lately is that when you produce slowly and methodically and intentionally, it's naturally going to reduce production Mm, levels. mm -hmm. And, you know, slow fashion, I believe, is really interconnected with sustainable fashion Mm -hmm. because overproduction is one of the biggest problems that we see in fashion today, mm-hmm. environmentally speaking, but also socially speaking, when we think about overworking and excessive hours. Whereas if we produce slower, if each process, if each step of the process is done with more intention, then not only do we have more time to think through the sustainability of each step a bit more, yeah. but you also physically cannot produce as much. No, you cannot. And so it's whether the, this is where it comes in where, you know, you love technology and then, okay, here's technology. You Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? It's two sides to it because technology has made us want things faster, but it's provided us with access much quicker. So when you talk about production and manufacturing, 
and you look at it and then how you distribute it, will the consumer be okay with receiving things slower? You know, the pandemic made us have to do that. But as you know, people are trying to get it back. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> They're trying to speed it back up again, you know, in that way. You have to have a consciousness, I guess you would say, of being okay with something being made for you and celebrating, appreciating, and really a high level of respect for the fact that it took this amount of time Mm -hmm. to be able to deliver this to you. You have to want to go through that process Mm -hmm. of it all. And everybody doesn't want to. Some people will never want to go through that process as well. But I think what is it is happening, which is why it is a great topic to talk about slow fashion, is that more people are becoming conscious and appreciative and respectful of the fact that they want something knowing that it was made and the time was taken. And 10 times out of 10, they're the only ones that have it. So this brings me on to the next question that I had for you which is based on your research into textile histories and understanding the slow methodical process of making yourself firsthand, what does a holistic view of slow fashion look like to you? Technology has afforded us certain things and you Certain things I wouldn't want to get rid of. You know what I'm saying? Certain things you do want access to. I think there has to be balance in it at this point. If we were talking about 20 years ago, I probably would have a different answer. But right now, I think we need some level of balance to it where, again, and maybe this comes to accessibility. People need to have the ability to have accessibility to slow fashion or handmade things as well as having some balance of things that require a level of faster production. I'm not going to necessarily say fast fashion, but just faster production may be required in that. And you think about the fact of what we call carding cotton, you mean cleaning it in that way. So is there a way that we could speed up that process a little bit without creating this workforce labor disparities that we have going on. That would be great to see because those who are wanting to be more sustainable in how they're producing cotton, some of them are creating processes themselves and systems and tools. And I mean, really tools to be able to do that without harm and damage environmentally. And they may need a faster process that will allow them to do that, but still keeps their principles in that particular way. So that it really is balanced. So how can technology aid them without destroying them? Mm -hmm. And how can it aid the planet without destroying it? I think that's where the fast fashion comes in. That's why that's not what I'm talking about. Because I'm not talking about making it so so fast that you can't control it anymore. Because that's what happened. We lost control of it. So then you're just constantly meeting a demand, afraid to tell people, no, they can't get meet that demand. And so then you make it faster and faster and faster. And then you have no consciousness or awareness or even care anymore about the people who are working in the conditions to deliver what you have promised, you know, in that particular way. So I think we need some, we need balance. We need balance. So if I choose to continue to weave everything on a hand loom and not on a machine loom, not with a pattern, digital screen, which I may get to a digital screen, does not mean that I'm going to produce 16 of them. It may just mean that it makes the process a little faster so that I get it to you in um, six weeks instead of the six months that it may take me. But it doesn't change the fact that you're the only one that has it, Elizabeth. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I think there has to be balance. Has to be balance. I don't think technology's figured out balance yet. Yeah. And you mentioned that your current view is different from what you would have said 20 years ago. So I'm curious, what would you have said 20 years ago? And, you know, how has your opinion around it changed? I think then it would have been like technology is the worst. (laughs) 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 That is doing too much, you know, (laughs) um, but it 
it, it really has done too much in a way. I think certain things humans are just not ready for, mm. but people keep moving anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting that you bring this up because I have been reading a lot of books lately focused on slowing down from an economic perspective, like degrowth mm -hmm. through Less is More by Jason Hickel, mm. but also from a lifestyle perspective. I recently read Stolen Focus by Johan Hari, which is about why our attention spans are shrinking and yeah, how we can okay. focus better. And he focuses a lot on technology, of course. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether it's social media or email or any of the dozens of other apps that we we have on our phones, they are influencing our minds. And something interesting that he talks about towards the end is that he found that literally everything when looking at history, everything is faster. We walk faster. We talk faster. Yeah. But biologically, we can only evolve so fast, right? Physically, we evolve quite slowly. Our, our minds can only work so fast. They can only process so much. And all of this that we're being inundated with, with notifications and news feeds and all the things, it's almost too much for our minds to keep up with it and making us feel overwhelmed yeah. and maybe yeah. anxious, you know, like, this scrolling on social media while watching TV, it's just overloading our brains. And Correct. I think that we can feel that individually, personally, Correct. when we start to notice it, too. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And we, we are trying to, you mm. know what I'm saying? We're, we're trying to adapt, you know what I'm saying, to a world as, you know, moving fast. I mean, I've been talking lately about the metaverse and how we design a metaverse that's inclusive. Mm -hmm. And it gets to that. It's like, here comes another piece. Here comes another piece. And it's like, okay, so how does the craft industry, how does a weaver fit into that? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, when you decide that you are going to be on a hand loom and still make it, so how do you fit into this new web 3.0 and the metaverse? And all? so it is uh, it's very fascinating to me. Because you're absolutely correct. And the fact of in the book is like we as humans, we want things to move fast, but we don't want a world of robots. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So we're not ready for that. Mm -hmm. Yet it's coming, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, how do you, again, it's got to be a level of balance as we evolve. Because if we think about man and years, hundreds of thousands of years ago, what the development was so much slower, yet life, According to what we know, they live so much longer in that situation. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, whether technology becomes our friend or not, because art imitates life. Mm. And if you watch any movie, we don't end up with. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So true. <laughs> yeah, that, that's very true. A great point. I'm definitely big into like dystopic novels and films. And it is it is mm -hmm. definitely alarming how the dystopias of decades past are playing out now and, and how mm -hmm. like current ones, you can see how, how they're sort of playing out in small ways and it might evolve that way. And we just have to stay vigilant, yeah. I think, because, of course, technology can aid us in some very real ways. We're not going to give up our tech that makes our lives more convenient. But big tech as an industry does operate with a growth paradigm and, and will do whatever it takes to grow their profits as we've seen time and time again already. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because technology is big business. Yeah. Well, I guess we got a little off course there. <laughs> no, but it plays in. I'm telling you, it affects it all. Yeah. yeah. That's why we have fast fashion because technology is afforded it to move fast. So, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, since we are on this topic now, something else you said earlier really struck a chord okay. with me. You were saying something along the lines of, even though we have the technology to make the process of production easier and mm -hmm. faster, it doesn't mean we have to respond by producing a ton of stuff. And, you know, that reminded me of some of my recent readings on degrowth and post-growth. 
And I'm not sure if this was Jason Hickel's Less is More book or perhaps The Day the World Stops Shopping by J.B. McKinnon or something else. (laughs) Things are sort of blending together in my mind. But basically, I guess the what that reminded me of is how when you look historically, like during the Industrial Revolution, production got so much more efficient and continues to get more and more efficient. But that efficiency has not meant less work. Instead of efficiency gains leading to less hours of work, we're just getting more work done in the same amount of time. And of course, those productivity gains are going to those at the top in the form Mm. of profits for the Mm. industrialists or the capitalists, the CEOs, whoever it may be, the shareholders. But I also see that I'm doing that to myself, being self-employed in my own Mm -hmm. business. I'll make an efficiency improvement or maybe automate a process, streamline something, and it'll save time. But then I just fill that time with more work Mm -hmm. and I just do more. So I guess the question is, you know, when you're talking about balance and figuring out how to use technology for good, I also think about how we can actually use the gains in productivity and efficiency from technology to rest and enjoy life, live life, instead of just using that time to produce more. Yeah, and I wonder if, Yeah, that's why it is fascinating to see. I guess humans have to be able to slow, they have to demand that it slows down and Mm -hmm. not try to outpace, outwit, join in with where things are. So, you know, that's been the great thing about being part of the textile and fiber community for those who are looking at it from either preserving history restoring it or in a sustainable space because in those areas they remain at the place of how can we enjoy technology while continuing to have the balance of the slowing down continuing to use Mm -hmm. what is in front of us meaning organic things continuing to be conscious about what we choose continuing to be inclusive in community of those who are part of, and as long as you understand that you are here to preserve, restore, and create a level of equity, then no one has keeps having this discussion about culture and what's missing in culture because they continue to invite it in, you know, mm-hmm. in that way. And those, again, that's the communities that continue to want to make sure that it's handmade that it gives an opportunity to understand how e-commerce can benefit it and not speed it up and make it something that is waters down Mm -hmm. what the end user, the client, the consumer is receiving in that way. So they want to keep it beautiful in its process. You know, they want to keep it beautiful in the fact that the maker still enjoys what she or he is creating in that particular way or they are creating. So I think that's the beautiful thing about when you say conscious, when you say sustainable, when you say people who are about restorative history, if these communities, I think, could continue to grow, there'll be probably more conversation around slow fashion than there is right now. And in a way that is supportive and not having to consistently fight against a system. Yeah. And I think that is a powerful way to round out our conversation today. So Karen, thank you so much for all of your time and the wisdom and insights that you shared with us today. No, this has been great. Always it's something I want to talk about. So I appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do have one final question for you that I ask every guest that comes onto the show, Mm -hmm. which is what would a better future for fashion look like to you? Wow. Ooh, that's a big question. I think a better future would be, I think I use the word inclusive and integration, where you see more people 
If you say BIPOC community, if you say new majority that you see just in mainstream, whether they want to be in mainstream or not, they have the choice to actually be there and not having to fight their way into this future. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with someone else that you think would get something out of it or perhaps share it on social media. You can find this podcast at Conscious Style on Instagram. A rating and review also helps our show reach new audiences. If you're looking for more sustainable fashion content, you can join our weekly newsletter, The Conscious Edit, at ConsciousLifeInStyle.com forward slash edit. In these newsletters, I share articles, podcasts, brands, advocacy campaigns to support, and much more. Subscribers also get access to an ever-growing 10-page list of sustainable fashion educational resources. The link to subscribe will also be in the episode description. So I will see you next Tuesday for another episode of the Conscious Style Podcast. Make sure you're following this show on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss it. Or I'll see you on Saturday if you're a newsletter subscriber. In the meantime, if you're looking for another episode similar to this one, I would recommend episode 29 with Lydia Went on compostable clothing, natural dyes, and local supply chains. All right, take care and I will catch you again soon. This episode was brought to you by Green Eco Dream, a sustainably minded marketplace that makes finding eco-friendly alternatives for all of your needs from laundry to skincare, so much easier. Visit ConsciousLifeInStyle.com forward slash dream or check out the link in the episode description or show notes to browse their low-waste, high-quality curation of earth-minded products.